Hey there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. It is created by journalists for journalists. And as a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly. Experts with so much knowledge and insight, and yet it rarely makes it past the headlines. So today, I'm bringing on one of those experts to answer all of the burning questions I've ever had about their field. We're chatting with the Honorable Dana Lee Marks. She's a retired immigration judge who served 35 years on the bench. Judge Marks has also served as president and vice president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. She is currently an advisor for NAIJ. Judge Marks, it is so nice to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation, Catalina. Okay, so immigration courts are really something very different from all other courts in the United States because immigration courts, as I have learned throughout my reporting, they exist and operate under the executive branch, not the judicial branch. So let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about this unique operating structure. Sure. There are a lot of people that don't realize, and understandably so, that there is a subset of courts uh, in the United States which are administrative courts. That means they are placed within an agency, like Social Security uh, is a big example. There's uh, courts in the Department of Labor. And there are different rules legally that apply to courts like that. And the immigration courts fall in that category. Immigration judges are actually attorneys employed by the U.S. Department of Justice to serve as adjudicators, to act as judges. But we don't have similar powers to judicial branch judges, and we don't have the full range of authorities. And that has caused a huge conflict I believe that the cases that we hear in immigration court are often death penalty cases, and yet we're hearing them in what is essentially a traffic court kind of setting. Uh, Even if it is not an asylum-based case where someone fears for their life if they're returned to their homeland, uh, it is a misnomer when you hear lawful permanent residency. Permanent is not really true. People who have their permanent residency or their green cards can lose their status if certain events occur. And those kinds of cases are two of the most frequent cases that we hear in our immigration courts. You know, and what is so unique and interesting about this is that, yes, there are 69 immigration courts, over 600 immigration judges that operate within this executive branch. But the executive branch is the branch of government that enforces the laws, including, might I add, immigration laws. And so I wonder what kind of conflicts and issues arise as different administrations take control. How do they impact immigration courts? Well, tremendously. And it's a flaw in the system that uh, I and the National Association of Immigration Judges for years uh, have advocated be solved by taking the courts out of the Department of Justice. But I'll come back to you in, in a minute about that. The problems that we have by being an administrative court and being uh, 
subservient or having to answer to the attorney general, who is the chief officer of the Department of Justice, means that law enforcement uh, initiatives and priorities can be imposed upon the immigration courts, which should be neutral. And under the law established by Congress, people in immigration courts have many of the same rights as people in a judicial court. The big things that they don't have is the right to appoint counsel, to appointed counsel, uh, even if somebody is uh, uh, mentally impaired or if someone is a minor child, there's no right in the law for those people to have appointed counsel. For the judges, it means that we have bosses. When have you ever heard of a judge having a boss they have to be accountable to? But because of the fact that the law is written in a way that allows the attorney general to continue to characterize judges, immigration judges, as attorney employees of the Department of Justice, we have a boss. We have a supervisor. We have people who are looking over our shoulders and directing the way that we handle cases, not so much the ultimate outcome, but how we schedule cases, how quickly they're done, how we prioritize. And occasionally, when an administration goes very hard on immigration enforcement, they do actually begin to narrow the authorities uh, given to immigration judges to control their caseload, their docket, and that in effect often results in directing the outcome of the case. Right. You could definitely see or imagine a situation where maybe you increase the amount of cases that each judge has to look at and decrease the amount of time that each person or each judge has to take a look at the case. Is that maybe like an example of how? That is a perfect example. I often say that the quintessential skill of a good judge is the ability to control their docket, to figure out how much time to allow an individual case to be presented in court, or when to put it on the court's docket, how soon to hear it, uh, how much time do the parties need to prepare. If someone is fortunate enough to have an attorney, the attorney needs time to get documents, which often come from a foreign country. If someone does not have the resources to uh, pay for an attorney, they have to do it on their own, which is even more challenging. Or they can, uh, in, in many large cities, there are volunteer organizations, nonprofits, that help individuals, but obviously they are overwhelmed with cases and they need more time to prepare, not less. But many administrations, both Republican and Democrat over the years, have felt that if the process is speeded up in some way, that that will discourage illegal immigration. And it has not proven to be the case, but it is such a clearly visible action that a political administration can take that it keeps being implemented time and time and time again. Uh, some experts have called it aimless docket shuffling, uh, moving the cases of new arrivals to the front of the line. Well, the downside of that, even though it seems like, well, yeah, maybe that would 
diminish the number of people coming to the border. But because due process is still our golden rule in immigration courts, often those cases that are moved to the front of the line are not ready to be presented. And so they end up being continued. But to make space for them, cases that have been scheduled on the docket for years, and it can be up to four, five, six years at times, uh, and sometimes even longer before a case actually is scheduled for time on a judge's calendar because we are so overwhelmed with cases. And one of the uh, drawbacks of having been part of the Department of Justice, is that the needs of the immigration courts have often been overlooked in terms of hiring a sufficient number of judges and support staff. And that's a large part of why we have this backlog, which is approaching 2 million cases. Nobody wants that. It, it has the ironic benefit of weak cases, uh, will benefit from the delay, but the majority of worthy, strong cases are harmed by lingering on the docket for so long. People lose contact with witnesses. They are charged uh, by attorneys each time a court date is set. They're all ready to go, and a week or two beforehand, they're told, no, they can't go forward on that date, sometimes even as late as the day of the hearing. Well, then that case preparation becomes stale. And so even if someone is lucky enough to have an attorney, a lot of work has to be done over. And it is the, it is the non-citizen who ends up taking the brunt of that. It also is very problematic for people, uh, especially asylum seekers, who have been separated from family and loved ones. Uh, often the the most endangered member of the family is the one that makes it to the United States first, but spouses and children are left in very precarious circumstances back home. And so there's a huge downside to having a backlog as large as we have and to keeping judges who were the ones in, I call us the benches in the trenches, uh, the ones that are on the front lines to allow us to organize our daily casework in a way that maximizes our ability to put cases that are ready for hearing up front and to allow the cases that are not ready for hearing to be given a little bit more time to be prepared. Right. Well, what you just said reminds me of the saying, just as delayed is just as denied. And it makes me think, I know that we have been dealing with this backlog, hit, about to hit 2 million. People are now waiting years in order to get their case adjudicated. I wonder, has it always been this way or what what has led us to where we are now? Right. It, it's a complicated mix of factors. Um, and I would say it has gotten to the crisis point for about 20 years. Part of the fact is that immigration law is often compared to tax law in terms of how, how complex it is. And I say it's far more complex than tax law. Why? And I can tell you an easy proof that any citizen can figure out. There's TurboTax for simple tax returns. There's no equivalent 
TurboTax kind of approach to immigration law because there are no choices that are either or. Every choice has more ramifications to it. And so an expert in immigration law has to consider all of those options. And so it's very difficult um, in terms of what the law is. There have been changes to the law in the past 20 years that have actually complicated and, dare I say, mucked up the, the clarity of the law, making it more difficult to move things quickly. And this chronic lack of funding for immigration courts has created this snowball effect. Uh, another reason why immigration court cases are so difficult to handle in a, in a rapid fashion is that unlike many other, every other court that I'm aware of, we have no ability to settle cases. It's an either or, the way the law is structured Either the uh, non-citizen gains some kind of status or the government proves that the person is here without any legal status and does not qualify for any status that would allow them to remain. That's not the case in criminal law where plea bargains occur and some sort of middle ground can be achieved. We don't have that luxury. Civil court cases settle at times with compromises. So we are in a really unique situation where it's very difficult to achieve that kind of consensus and move cases along. And depending on the philosophy of a particular administration, the Department of Homeland Security does not exercise prosecutorial discretion. They don't decide which are the cases that are more important that need to be put into the immigration court process because perhaps that non-citizen is a danger to the community and someone who should be removed from the country. Instead, everyone whose immigration violation is as trivial as a uh, jaywalking ticket to someone who has a very serious charge against them of a serious uh, victim, uh, excuse me, a serious crime, or someone who is in fact a threat to national security, all those cases come into the system, into our, our dockets in the same way. And that doesn't make sense either. It sure doesn't. You would definitely, I mean, without being able to prioritize which cases are more important to our communities, to the interest of national security, it seems like individuals who could be really dangerous can be stuck in the system for many, many years. That's that's also really scary. It's really frustrating in the field to see how much misinformation gets publicized. Uh, the r crime rates for non-citizens are markedly lower than for United States citizens. Mm -hmm. And yet what you hear in the headlines is, oh, this person was an immigrant and perhaps even someone who was here without any legal status, undocumented. Those cases get the publicity, but they are extremely small in number compared to crimes committed by Americans who are here with legal status. Um, so it's quite frustrating to me 
to watch the headlines at times because in my personal experience, which is actually 45 years, 10 years as an attorney in private practice uh, in immigration law, plus my 35 years on the bench, the people, the American citizens that I encountered had no idea how harsh the law was mm -hmm. and who thought there was some way to do it right, as they say. The immigration laws are so broken at this point that employers who need workers and want to help them regularize their status can't do that. That family members, husbands and wives of green card holders can be required to have a wait in a line, a quota for decades. And I mean, literally decades. That's a broken law. That who is going to remain separated from their family member for that long a period of time? It invites people to break the law. It's just not realistic. And from the Americans who I see who come in to speak on behalf of the non-citizens, they're telling me that these individuals are pillars of the community, that they are their best workers, that they are volunteering at their churches and their schools and raising the, the, the dreamers, right? The most successful young uh, undocumented individuals who at least have gotten some very limited form of relief for a period of time, but that doesn't resolve the strat status of their parents who or their siblings who uh, don't meet the criteria for that program. So there's a lot of disconnect between the real world application of the immigration law and uh, what the general public has been led to believe is the situation. You know, something else that I hear a lot from people that are frustrated about the immigration system, they say, well, immigrants don't show up to court. And I was reading a report after 11 years of analyzing government data, the American Immigration Council showed that 83% of immigrants apparently do show up to court. And the some that don't is also because they didn't receive information to their correct address or in their correct language, or they didn't have a way to get to court. I'm sure you could speak to this a lot more, but does that sound about right? according to your experience? In my experience, that is absolutely true. When I began as a judge, hearing notices had to be sent by certified mail with a return receipt. So you knew that at least someone received the notice. Now you have no way of even knowing because they're just sent out in regular mail. And I don't know how many of you have had mess ups with uh, regular mail, it's not really the most reliable. Um, my experience is that the overwhelming majority, and if the statistics show 83% uh, actually show up, I believe that. I think that is true. Uh, the notice system is very flawed. Um, the lack of access to community organizations or to lawyers who can explain what a notice means, because what good is a notice in English to someone who speaks an indigenous language? Right. They, they are often victims of unscrupulous uh, notaries or um, 
are just a victim of, of the fact that there's ignorance in the community. They don't understand what is required of them. Uh, and so I think it really is one of those ideas or urban legends, as it were, that people rampantly don't show up. That is not, not my experience at all and not what the statistics bear out. People do show up, and of that subset of people who do not show up, the vast majority are not showing up because they don't have attorneys. So they don't have someone who can help to explain to them what is required of them. The statistics for people not showing up to court drop dramatically when someone it has access to an attorney. Right. And there's actually a few initiatives around the country right now, including here in Los Angeles, where they're trying to provide some people that need immigration attorneys with attorneys, um, specifically when they show that they don't have the means to pay for one. As you say, a lot of these cases are death penalty cases. If they're seeking asylum or something similar, these people could be sent back into very dangerous situations. Right. Communities are beginning to realize that they have a role where they can help the immigrant population by sponsoring those kinds of nonprofits, even if all, what they're doing is not legal services directly, but just education sen uh, uh, seminars and um, the possibility of directing people, helping them know when a low-cost notary is uh, reputable or not, some of the signs to look out for, because our legal system is completely foreign to these individuals, right? Uh, our laws are different from many of the laws in the countries uh, where people are coming from. So it's not intuitive to them. It's not something that they understand how to deal with even if they want to and are trying. And there are a large number of cases where people simply do not receive the notification that they're supposed to be in court. And I've heard recently that the electronic uh, scheduling system is not always providing accurate results. I've heard attorneys complain about that when someone comes to them for a consultation and they're trying to figure out, does this person have a hearing or not? Uh, it, they find it extremely difficult and at times find misinformation. Wow. Okay, so we just talked about all of the issues within this system. Is there anything that is going right in the system currently that's working correctly? <laughs> I think the dedication of the staff members that I know, and that goes from the judges down to the people at the, at the reception windows. Uh, government workers often get a bad rep for being lazy or unconcerned. That is not my experience. Uh, immigration judges as a whole are the most hardworking, compassionate group of people that I've ever met. Um, and I think that is extremely helpful. I am in total admiration and awe of the community of immigration lawyers who devote a tremendous amount of volunteer time um, and help individuals and do impact litigation. Um, 
that is what keeps me optimistic that eventually uh, Congress will listen to some of us who have been in the field and accept some of the reforms that we believe would make this system work a hundred times better, thousand times better. And we have a plan. Um, there are uh, many, many legal organizations who believe that the immigration court should be restructured, that we should be taken out of the Department of Justice and not have a political appointee, the attorney general, as our boss, as it were, and that we should be restructured as what is called an Article I court. The best way to describe that, I think, is that it's like the tax court. You don't want the boss of the prosecutor to be the boss of the judges, right? The judges shouldn't have a boss. There should be a government prosecutor who presents the government side of the case, and there should be private individuals or pro bono organizations or appointed attorneys who can represent the non-citizen so that we can make the most accurate result, achieve the most accurate result under the law. Uh, and that's what uh, many, many, many uh, organizations have endorsed. Uh, and we are fortunate that Representative Zoe Lofgren uh, and others have introduced a bill in the House of Representatives to transform the immigration court into an Article I court. That independence would allow the funding for the courts to be much more transparent instead of the courts being buried as some minute line item in the budget of the huge Department of Justice. So that would help us make sure that funding comes when it's needed, as it's needed. And it means that the judges would be restored judicial independence to be able to make the decisions that they believe the law requires them to do and enables them to do. It would not change the underlying substance of who qualifies under the immigration law. That's a whole other can of worms, uh, and getting Congress to come to a consensus about that is extremely difficult. But the procedural reform of creating independent courts would go a long way to assuring that the laws that are currently on the books are applied in the most even-handed way, that we are not boomeranged back and forth with initiatives uh, every time the administration changes. And uh, as the Congress and as the White House goes from one party to another, we lose ground in the court each time because each succeeding administration wants to put their mark on the immigration courts. And that's not good for a court system. It's far better for us to be insulated and protected and be neutral. And it's doable. It's doable if people go out and tell their congressmen and their senators, this should be done and this should be done now. Judge Marks, thank you so much for all that insight. Really, really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Anytime. You can learn a lot more about Judge Marks and hundreds of other exceptional experts by visiting rolyapp.com. I'm Catalina Villegas, and you can always connect with me on social media at Catalina Official, O-F-F-C-L, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. 
Until next time.